Hello, you're listening to Desert Island Discs with me, Kirsty Young. For rights reasons, the records will be ever so short! It's not, it's Russell Brand Underskin. Sorry, that was childish. It's not even that sort of a show. Uh, this show is sponsored by me and my rebrand tour. Tour dates that you should be coming to are Southampton on May the 2nd, Woking, 3rd of May, Oxford, 10th of May, Southport, 23rd of May, Owlsbury, 6th of June, Watford, 7th of June, Skegness, Skegness, on the 15th of June. Go to russellbrand.com for your... Your tickets. Also, if you like this show, please subscribe to it and review it on iTunes. Five star reviews are very helpful. We are trying our best to educate you on Under the Skin. It's going to be a hell of an episode today. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. It's an interesting show that we've got for you to down under the skin. We're straddling the world of academia and celebrity, as is so often my want, because we are talking to Professor Noel Fitzpatrick. If you want to come on this show, you better profess. If you don't profess, you're not coming on. Noel Fitzpatrick is a world-class specialist, neuroorthopedic veterinary... Do you know what? I don't know how to say this word. Veterinary. Veterinary. Veterinary surgeon. Best known for his groundbreaking work in small animal practice. He has conceived and developed a number of world-first initiatives for the animals he treats, such as synthetic cartilage transplant and spinal disc replacement. His practice, Fitzpatrick Referrals in Surrey, is a last chance saloon for pets whose broken bones cannot be treated at a standard vet's. It was a filming location of the BBC documentary The Bionic Vet and the Channel 4 series The Super Vet. More than that, Noel has got some ex- some interesting views on the role of Big Pharma in not only animal medicine, but in the uh, treatment of human beings and in a range of subjects, notably oncology. So whether you regard him as a professor of animal medicine and surgery or just a super vet, it's time to get under the skin with somebody who literally does get under the skin because he's a surgeon, Noel Fitzpatrick. Noel, thanks for coming in. How did you travel to How the studio? It's, actually, it's a pleasure to be here. I actually was trying to get the train and a brilliant thing happened, which is an absolute example of mankind. So I went to the train station in Guildford, got my little ticket, went through the gates, and there's six guys in yellow outfits the other side. Sorry, mate, there's no trains. And I'm like, guys, why are you not the other side where all the people are buying the tickets to get the trains that don't exist? Bureaucracy. And they're, and they're like, oh. And then there was a, another big queue of people looking for refunds. And I thought to myself, this is a little microcosm of me coming to see Russell today. So I was thwarted in my voyage to get a train and then had to drive in and, and get a cab because uh, I then couldn't find my way. But I'm here and it's all good. You're a workaholic, and I think even that uh, initial anecdote reveals how you see yourself and feel yourself to be a man working at the ki- against an edifice of bureaucracy. Now, how in your world of like your TV's super vet, you're like you know since uh, I've gotten to know you, I've discovered how beloved you are of many people. Like no one's going to be more beloved of someone that than someone who saves their pets. Uh, and I, I sort of want to know how this is sort of transposes into this sort of odd, edgy, reg, rock star component of your identity, when in fact you are a professor of veterinary surgery. How does that intersect? Because to become a professor of veterinary surgery is never a word I'm confident saying. Isn't that like how long in academia, how long in school do you have to spend to get that title? Um, a lot of lonely nights in American hotel rooms writing lectures for the next morning. <laughs> I've really? never turned up in America without lectures, with actual lectures written. I was writing them on aircrafts, planes, trains, and all of so I remember curling up in a disabled toilet, writing one, and, and thinking exactly that. Like 15 years of that. 15 I've been years. in more disabled toilets writing lectures. Actually, because Get I, out of those disabled I, I toilets. Have to, no. I have to say, apologies to disabled people, but uh, there were a few knocks on the doors and I always vacated the toilet <laughs> when <laughs> it was needed. But, uh, I've had uh, similar uh, experiences <laughs> in disabled toilets. Uh, not, <laughs> not, not always for academic purposes. And I too always left with whoever was in there with me. Immediately the knock on the door I happened. I fell asleep one day, which isn't good. But it takes a while. It takes a while. But it, to come back to your, your point about... Um, you know, being lauded in people's minds. Mm. That is very much a double-edged sword. And I 
um, Thursday. I was in Birmingham and very kindly and, and lovely, they gave me an award. And actually, I was crying in the toilet. I spent a lot of time in toilets. Yeah, the whole um, of this interview. I, I, I was about no, time but this is true. I was actually crying in the toilet before I went in because there's a client who's very, very angry with me because things didn't work out with her dog. And I had told her before, you know, these are all the risks. And, and unfortunately, I do not always succeed. And we try very, very hard in the television show to show failure. And I've had long discussions with Channel 4 because mm. ultimately a broadcaster has a moral responsibility as well as a legal responsibility as mm. well as a entertainment responsibility to bring stuff into people's houses at 8pm that isn't going to really upset them too much. But real life is is full of upset and, and also epiphany and joy. But you can't have the yin without the yang. And when people say, oh, isn't it great to be you know, to do all that and everything. Yes, it is. And I feel very honored and everything else and humbled most of the time. But I know more and more about less and less. And the more I know, the more I know I don't know. And I'm, I'm, I spend more of my time being deeply upset because people expect more and more of me. And then if I don't deliver and things don't work out for their friend, I'm desolate, they're desolate, and sometimes they lash out. And then it's like a spear going through your heart. So, yeah, I mean, it's high stakes gambling, isn't it, I suppose, because you're dealing with a large number of surgeries. And if it doesn't work out for you, you and the people whose uh, friend it is are emotionally devastated. So you were before you received your award in Burnham, you're crying because why? What did you lose? What animal? Well, I just felt um, I won't go into specifics because it isn't fair to the animal or the person, but I just felt. This is nice because the profession for, well, even now, I'm Marmite. Half of them think I'm okay and I show compassion and I stand up for vets and I explain to people if we could bottle that love and the thing we stand for, the world would be a better place. And the other half think is some egotistical dude who's getting up to, to, to jump up and down on his own podium and he has is only self-interested. And I guess that's human nature to, mm. to think that. But it's not like it doesn't hurt because it genuinely does hurt. And the people say the most ridiculous things. Hilariously, I met the Queen. And then the, the rumour was, oh, yes, he got all his money from the Queen. And the fact that I borrowed several million quid, probably in excess of 10 at the moment, to build the place is like ri like ridiculous facts that are not facts. They're not even, as Donald Trump would say, alternative truths. <laughs> They're just nothing like real life. But people build you up because you're on the telly, and then you become both the hero and the villain of mm. the piece. And that's the same in every operation. So it's just an exaggerated version of opening the theatre doors and today, in the next hour, you're going to be a hero or you're going to be a villain. And to some extent, it's taken out of your hands by biology because you'll try and do the very best you can. And it's hard. It's um, I love vets. I, th I think that genuinely we all start out thinking, well, we want to look after animals. But importantly, in society... We have this really important role. I mean, if you think about the English language, to doctor something has a relatively negative connotation. Mm. To vet something, a very good connotation. That's interesting. And if you think about that, you look at the down the generations from James Herriot to now, what has changed in veterinary medicine? What's really fascinating to me is to get letters from kids that are 9, 10, 11, 12. I am their James Herriot because they're in the internet era. They're in the super vet era. So they look to me as their hope and salvation. Did you like that show, Then All Creatures Great I and did. Small, with James Herriot and his, the books that preceded I, I, it? I loved it. Well, that inspired you to become a vet? No, it didn't. Um, the death of a lamb inspired me to become a vet. What do you mean? A literal lamb yeah. in your own life? Or yeah. Tell us about that. I was, um, I was a kid. Uh, I grew up on a farm in Ireland. It's a very cold farmhouse. It was almost warmer outside than in on a frosty night. And you, you wake... You've got to keep that cold and <laughs> shut the door. You'll warm the place up. Well, if your leg fell out of bed, you'd think you had gangrene in the morning. It was that cold. But anyway, it was a freezing night like that. And I used to do the late shift. So I'm a real night owl. I'm, I'm at my best, I think, around midnight. Uh, or maybe 2am even. But my job was to look after the sheep till 3am. And Dad would get up at 5am. And then he'd look after the sheep. And I, I went out... And a, a sheep was having a lamb and it fell down in the drain and couldn't have the lamb. And then I put in my hand to take out one lamb and the leg was down. I was pretty good at lamb and sheep. And I pushed that lamb back in, pulled it out, but it was dead. And the sheep couldn't get up the bank. And, of course, I was small and weak and, and just a child. You? I was 10, 10, 10 or 11, 10, I think. And um, I could feel another lamb in there. And 
finally I got that lamb out under the water surface and dragged it up the bank and eventually the sheep got up the bank and then I'm walking up the field and I can see it like it was yesterday and in fact I saw it last Thursday when they gave me that award as well because I felt completely inadequate, completely useless, completely nothing because I fell on the on the ice and I looked up at all the stars in heaven and I thought to myself, I am nothing in the midst of all of this because a lamb died right in front of my eyes. And I thought, this sucks. I have no power over anything here. I can't save this lamb. I, c- I have to go and tell my dad now that the lamb has died. I'm going to get blamed. And it, it, it hasn't changed. Mm. I still get blamed for the death now, even though I, I think I know quite a lot more. But actually, the paradigm hasn't changed at all. It's just a microcosm of that repeating on a loop all of my life. You've got a very romantic worldview, mate. Not all people see the world in those kind of terms. Because we've, like previously on Under the Skin, we've been talking to academics, Professor Paul Gilroy, Professor Brad Evans, Professor Anne Phillips, Adam Curtis, people that are very... Um, analytical and very uh, you know information based worldviews just talking to you now for 10 minutes it's quite clear that your uh, professional impetus is coming from a place of deep personal emotion you sort of sound more like an irish writer than a, like a surgeon because a surgeon is like a kind is a sort of that's a precise job isn't it i mean it's not a job that i particularly associate with the romanticism and passion, compassion, yes. But uh, you, you, like, it seems to you that it's something you're very, very invested in emotionally. You can cut with a scalpel blade, you can cut with a pen, or you can cut with the words you say. And for me, there is no dividing line between art and science. There never was, never should be. That was created by mankind to compartmentalise our brains. But in reality, all science is an artistic achievement from Leonardo da Vinci right back to stuff that was BC. If you look at any of the hieroglyphics, anything that happened in the track of mankind's collective consciousness, the division, the artificial division between art and science is not just annoying, it's compartmentalization of the human brain to the extent that you do not need to do that. And I've always believed and still believe no matter how much science I've learned, no matter how many exams I've passed, no matter how much I've sweated over those books and those papers, I can spend the next 20 years writing scientific papers. No one will ever read. You don't care because, frankly, they're boring. <laughs> and, and nobody reads them. So I'm not going to change anything in my lifetime. And sure, you can't drive a Ferrari without an engine. You have to publish the science. You have to have the evidence. You have to have the ethics. You have to have the efficacy. You have to prove it. But there's no point in proving it if no one knows you've proved it. And that is the whole raison d'etre of coming and talking to you, of being on television at all, because unless you get a platform where people are forced to think for a moment that maybe we're quite selfish, maybe we should look at the love that someone has for a dog and the love that someone has for a child in the same breath. Maybe we should look at the love that someone has for the stars in the sky or a movie in the same breath as just love. And let's look at that for a minute rather than just being up your own arse and talking about science. I suppose, though, Noel, that uh, the science is, and I speak to you as a person who knows very little about it, is founded in empiricism, in double-blind tests, in this we can prove. Whereas art is a continued, while both science and art are in negotiation with the unknown, science has an obligation towards empiricism to say we can do this again and again and we can do this because of this. Now, like, and art, I think, is like a, a continuing interpretation of the un, unknowable, a, continue, a continuing interpretation and negotiation with essence. Whereas science is about, well, this is how I can replace a dog's hip successfully. I've done it before, I've done it again. Oh, this one flutes downwards, so I'm going to have to use concrete. This one's like this, so I can use steel you know these are like empirical and practical ideas if you're dealing with you know now i know there's some science in the sistine chapel ceiling or in a a mozart symphony because there are patterns and there are things that can be empirically proved so i understand i suppose where you say it's a crossover because it is a negotiation with the unknown but you seem to be kind of frustrated almost by the pragmatism and materialism of science why is that you said two very important words essence and unknown The essence of either art or science is the birth of an idea. It's the birth of innovation through frustration. It's the birth of a will to create a different world and to prove the efficacy, the evidence, and in my case, the ethics of the approach. That is where the realm of the unknown 
becomes the realm of the known. Currently, I exist in a world which is somewhere between unknown and known because change is going to happen anyway. The computer games industry has changed dramatically in the last 10 years. Radio stations have changed dramatically in the last 10 years. Everything is moving on, and yet a lot of the techniques and the, and the principles behind human and animal medicine have stayed the same for ages. You look at the last 20 years of cancer drug development in dogs, to take a small example. We've been using the same drug for osteosarcoma for the last 20 years. What is osteosarcoma? It's a bone cancer, which, by the way, shares 265 genes, at least, with humans. In fact, statistically, if you have a 14-year-old child and a Labrador or a Great Dane or a Rottweiler with bone cancer, you are more likely to find similarities between the dog and that child than between that child and another child based on the cell type, the phenotype of that particular cell. And in fact, if you took that cell and looked at it under a microscope, a pathologist would have great difficulty telling whether it came from a dog or a human because the phenotype and the genotype of many kinds of cancer are remarkably similar between dogs and humans. And here we delve into the realm of the known versus the unknown. So what is my job? My job is to take the artistic interpretation of why it is important to have thought at all and prove through the process of science the ethics, the limitations and the evidence that will provide a conduit for that drug, that implant, that device, that service to the animal kingdom and to mankind. And why I'm annoyed is because at the moment the blockages between humanity and animals dictate that for the last 250 years the veterinary profession has served human medicine by doing the experiments they needed to create the implants, drugs and so on for humans, but it didn't come back to help animals. I had a lady come from Inverness in Scotland in her camper van and sit in my car park because she'd been told by multiple veterinarians shoulder replacement is not possible in dogs. And yet, in the late 1940s, shoulder replacement was done in dogs to give humans hip replacements and shoulder replacements. And she's like, hang on, are you seriously telling me that this isn't possible in clinical practice 50 or 60 years later when you've already done it? And that's the paradox. So you can argue all you like about the, the defining lines between progress and change or the defining lines between art and science. But at the end of the day, we have a moral responsibility as humanity to look after the animal kingdom. And unless we take those ideas and allow a platform in which they can be proved in real life, in a heterogeneous cell population of cancer in dogs, for example, as opposed to heterogeneous meaning multiple types, in the same stroma of immortal cells that are going to kill your dog, which is almost identical to that same stroma in a human that's going to kill the human. If we don't, start a new paradigm that says we're going to study those side by side rather than just injecting a homogeneous cell population, which is a single cell cancer population, into an animal and then testing the drugs on that. Unless we reach that middle ground of cooperation, we are totally done. And I, and I can promise you, and I never promise anybody anything, except if I'm one million percent sure that that is the way it's going to go down. I can promise you that the next generation on planet Earth, your child will inherit an impoverished Earth where animals have an increased level of disrespect rather than an increased level of respect, and whereby we don't cure cancer, whereby we don't cure diabetes, whereby we don't cure these diseases, and, by the way, where we allow hatred and all the other nonsense to usurp our ability to love, unless we realise that we're all one. What are the obstacles that you face in creating the conditions clinically ethically and economically that that currently seem to be frustrating you. You're saying that the advances that could be made are not being made, uh, sharing of information that could be happening is not happening. What are the obstacles that you face and uh, who benefits from there being these obstacles? Well, are you saying that there are advances in, uh, in oncology, the treatment of cancer, that could be happening both for animals and for human beings that are being somehow inhibited or prevented from progressing for some reason that I can't possibly understand? Yes. So this is going to be an easy half hour, isn't <laughs> it? Um, so if we look at the paradigm of the last 250 years. You know, Claude Beaujolais wrote in his book on veterinary medicine, 
uh, that veterinary medicine was supposed to consult nature and seek out ideas that may be of service to the human species. And it was this picture of the light shining through the celestial windows of a chapel into a horse's abdomen. And I bled tears when I saw it because it was supposed to illuminate the animal for the benefit of mankind. Now, I didn't sign up for that when I was 10, did I? I signed up to help the animal because I wanted to be the advocate for the animal. I wanted to be the advocate for the one who did not have a voice and who was giving us love, giving us sustenance, giving us implants and giving us drugs. Fast forward 250 years, 2017. What's happening right now? There's 6,000 cancer drugs across the world that could come in and help human children with all kinds of diseases. How do you know that? Because I've done my research. That's so what, my 6, job. So 6,000 drugs what, that have worked on animals? No, that, have, that are potential. So right now, the sequence of events is that a drug is tested in a Petri dish. It's tested in a rodent model generally. Then it may be tested in a larger animal, such as a sheep, a goat, a pig, a dog. Then it may be goes into a phase one clinical trial in a human. That may take several years. It may also cost several hundred million, if not billions, because for every one drug that actually makes it through to phase one clinical trials, you may have many that fall by the wayside. And therefore, all of that pot of money is the failure pot. Mm. And that pot of money has to be made back by the people who need to make it back. Now, I'm not saying for one second that people don't mean well, because I'd like to think they do mean well. They want to treat cancer effectively. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if you look at what's happening across the world, last week I had a meeting with a guy called Professor William Eward, and his, he's a very unusual individual because he's a trained human surgeon and a trained canine surgeon. Mm. So half of his week he works on human children and half on dogs ah, with cancer. And he Potential for problems there. He, well, he doesn't mix them up. What but, have you done to my son's paws? <laughs> he, he actually has an, a remarkable achievement, which has just happened in America and which I would like to emulate here. And it's called the mouse to dog to man trial. And what that means is that let's say they have a cancer and let's say drug X might be better than drug Y because it is in the Petri dish and it is in the mouse. If you have cancer and you think you're going to die, do you want to be told what your options are? I would bet you, you do. Mm. If your dog has cancer and your dog may die, you want your options? Yes, you do. So if they have drug Y and they think it may be better than drug X, then they explore the possibility of giving drug Y to an actual clinical dog that has that cancer with full family volitional consent, which, by the way, is a legal position in the United Kingdom as well. Right, so they say we're testing this drug. Because I had a mate recently who had brain cancer, like stage four brain cancer, and he was dealing with a lot of that stuff. They were going like, listen, we don't know, this is where it's at trial phase, but we can use it on you. So like, they just uh, transparently explain that this isn't being empirically proven, but there's a chance. It's all about transparency and honesty, and I will bet that there's millions of people out there that would want access to new compounds for their dog. But so the point is... is transparency breaking down? Uh, well, well, the point is we don't get access to the drugs. So in other words, right now, the legal position is that we don't get access to those drugs early enough. In you mean you as a vet? Correct. So those drugs would then go into an experimental animal instead of straight... In lab conditions. Correct. So more cruelty to Well, animals. it's a challenge because you can't just change everything overnight. You, you can't. And there's mm -hmm. no point in having a really purist view about this. You have to work with people. Why? Because it's their livelihoods and it's their dream as well. Remember, they're not bad people. These are people who are doing a job to try and deliver a cure for cancer in a child that they really care about. Maybe they don't care about the animal along the way. I do. That's my job. So my job is to sit down and be a rational human being and sit down with them and say, look, the science would dictate that I could give you your scheduling and your toxicity data in 100 dogs over two years with full family compliance and full volitional transparency and I can give you the data you need. Do you want to work with me? Oh, and by the way, I might save you 20 million along the way. So what's the problem? Is it that is it 100 dogs over two years not quick enough? What's the obstacle? Yes, that's one issue. The end point is not clearly defined. So that is an issue. A second issue is money because you're going to have, say, 30 dogs in a clinical trial as opposed to dogs that are in an uncontrolled environment in mm, people's houses. What they're feeding them and all that. So it's less controlled. I once took part in a clinical trial uh, uh, for a, a gastric drug. You know, they would like pay you 100 quid a night. It's when I was younger. 
I was like maybe 20. And I had to, they did it at the Royal Free Hospital. My girlfriend was a trainee doctor in the last year of her training. I was oh, crazy about her. She was fantastic. And, like, and she goes, like, you can earn 100 quid doing these clinical trials. I was like, I'm there. But like the first one, you had to sleep in a the hospital. They stick a tube down your uter, right down your throat, and like, they give you this drug. But like the con- one of the conditions was is when you're over this seven-week period, you mustn't drink or use drugs. There's no way that I could keep that yeah, up. That wasn't, that wasn't for you, Russ. That no, was not, that's not, <laughs> not going to work. I couldn't but, qualify. I took but, drugs straight away as soon as I got out there because I was <laughs> irritated and agitated. So with a, like, try, in the, the model that you're suggesting where you provide the clinical conditions, i.e. let me treat 30 dogs or 100 dogs or whatever, they would say, well, you're not able to provide clinical conditions because those dogs go home and might eat cat meat or smoke a fag for all we know. That's the issue to some extent. But I would say there is a middle ground and already it's been proven in America that that's valid. And therefore, I think that we really do need to look at this because society increasingly doesn't want repetition of the same thing. They see on the SuperVet me putting in a limb amputation prosthesis in a dog that has no feet. So I put in an implant and the bone and the skin grows into it. And they're like, well, I have a friend who has no leg. Why doesn't he have that? And instead, we're not working together. So why don't your friend? Why don't human beings? Because do that? we don't have the regulatory framework with MHRA, FDA, and tell the, us what these things are. So MHRA is the governing body in the United Kingdom that control the release of drugs and implants, and they do a brilliant job. And by the way, you'll note very carefully that I am absolutely adamant that I will not alienate anybody. I want to work with them. I don't want to work against anybody. I want to work with them to get a better world. So these people do a great job at making sure your drug or your implant for you or your child or your missus is safe. That's their job. Mm. So if it's safe, you're going to want to give it to your family, right? Mm. You don't want it not to be safe. So my job is to augur a better paradigm whereby I get it into the animal and make it safe and effective for them as well. And remember, the animals that I'm treating have very few options. They may be going to die of cancer or they may be going to have both legs chopped off. So well, they're not going to do very well. Is we can give them this new drug. So, like, in my limited experience, and this is me just taking a punt from knowledge gleaned in other fields, that when you encounter an obstacle such as the one that you're describing, an inability for people to do what seems expedient and efficient, the obstacle is normally a concealed economic motive. Now, like, again, not particularly in your field, but more broadly, my understanding of big uh, agencies such as, like, the FDA in the United States, these are, like, big, in here, and I know you're big, careful and you're in a different position to me but these are big prohibitive inhibitive agencies that's primary interest is to protect the people that fund them they're usually big pharma corporations that have got a vested interest in certain types of drugs being used for certain functions i'm going to stop you right there because i'm going to have to disagree and the reason i'm going to have to disagree is that that with total respect is a blighted view from a cynic's point of view is it and i'm just going to be directly confrontational with you because you can't be cynical when it comes to saving life you can't be cynical when it comes to universal love for it's not cynical, all creatures. It's, it's skeptical and it's practical. And like the, we know, what? How are these agencies set up? now? how do okay, these agencies so, operate? Who do they work for? What are their objectives? What are their intentions? You might be out there wanting to save animals, but is yep. the FDA are all yes, these agencies? Yes, they are. are they they genuinely want to save animal life and save human life. And bear in mind that they're answerable to authorities that require them by law to make sure that safety and efficacy for all drugs and implants is paramount. I am a bit cynical, actually. I'm realising this now because I immediately think who funds that yes, agency? Of you do. Who funds those regulatory but, but what bodies? Because I... in the past, I guess I've just seen in a general way. Now, I'm not. you're a proper academic. You're a proper educated man. I'm not saying you haven't overcome many, many struggles. I'm not suggesting that that's not where I'm coming from. What I'm saying is, is that I've just heard time and time again, and the regulatory body was funded by Nestle. And it was, of course, <laughs> Smith and Klein that funds the thing. That's, you know what I mean? So it's like, you know, I'm just... Used to that, and when you talk about the bureaucracy of the seven guys in yellow jackets on the wrong side of the barrier, when you get to the train station, paradigmatically, what that sounds like to me is the way that the, re- the systems are regulated, the way of flow of human traffic or the flow of information is regulated, is typically defined by someone that's at the top of some pyramid of power and money that have natural, understandable resistance to change because things are working out just fine as they are now. Thank you. I love the way you pontificate for like a half an hour on the basis of an entirely maligned argument. And, 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 and I've made it up. <laughs> and I love it because it you're so polarizing. Can you imagine if I was to adopt your polarized view of the world and not look for some kind of equitable humanity among all that? Do you really think I would get change? 
if I didn't say to the people in the regulatory agencies, you know what, Mary, you know what, Fred, I actually do genuinely believe you're good people. I genuinely do. And by the way, Mary and Fred might have a dog. So they might be the very people I want to speak to. Remember that for more than 200 years, the job of associations and organisations is to keep us safe. So there's no point in saying, hang on, mister, you've got a vested interest in the status quo. You might, you might not. That's not for you or me to judge because I'm trying to augur change. So my job is to go in and say, you know what, ma'am, you know what, mister, I get it. I know what your job is. Let me help you to do your job better so I can do my job better. Mm. And if I can take this drug or take this implant, so take limb amputation prostheses. If I've been done them for 10 years, we did our first one 10 years ago, I've offered for free to give all that information and all my intellectual property for free because I don't want a penny for it. And by the way, I want to die cost neutral. I want to die with no pounds because everything I have is left to the Humanimal Trust, which is a charity I founded. So I don't care. So I'm saying, all I want to do is change things for the better. Mm. And, and at the end of the day, what do I need for myself? A cider under a chestnut tree, maybe a house and a car will be good to get around. Uh, but apart from that, I'm, I'm good, thanks. I'll always have a sick dog that I can put a couple of matchsticks on and mend his leg. So I will give you this for free. Do you want to come to the table? And there it becomes interesting. How Fred and Mary responding to this? Fred and Mary, Fred and Mary at the moment are not listening. Right, because I tell you why. No, Illuminati. No, they're all talking. No, no, Russ, <laughs> Russ, judge, Russ, take the amphetamines from behind your ear and calm down for two seconds. Because if Fred and Mary are listening to this, what I want them to do is actually open the door and listen to the few million people that are watching the Super Vet and press and replay in front of their vet or their doctor and saying, hang on a minute, whoa, 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 this dude's been doing this for 10 years. Why do you need to kill, say, 100 animals to know what he already knows? Now, that's dumb. So Fred and Mary have to face the reality that there's no point in killing those 100 dogs to know what I already know. I'll give you what I already know for free and let's start there, shall we? So why are Fred and Mary not cooperating if these are because these benevolent, non-corrupt agencies? There's not enough just, knowledge. In the, your, in your the 10 no- years, there's not enough knowledge or there's not enough knowledge within the agencies that you need to negotiate with to open up this blockage around the flow of knowledge Correct. around pharma and stuff. There's not enough knowledge and will to make it happen. Why? Because if you've done something the same way... So take the guys at the train station this morning, right? Mm. So they're standing at the train station. They've been told to stand the other side of the... I mean, it made no sense to me whatsoever because if they'd been out the front of the station, I wouldn't have bought the £26.50 ticket, no, would no. I? So There's an economic interest but, but, in but them I, standing I, no, there. But I, I didn't know what, what that barrier was, but that's their job. That's what they've done. So there's thousands of people. That's their job. And I'm yep. here to say no. I'm here to say no. Hang on a moment. There is a better way. Mm. And if we sit down around that table and if we truly become a little bit less self-interested, a little bit less selfish as humanity, then we might get some traction for change. And you're not going to do that by alienating everybody. I agree with you that, generally speaking, if we want progress, that we cannot be antagonistic, but we can't also, Noel, be complicit in people's duplicity. Like You know that the reason those guys are that side of the barrier is because Virgin Trains or whatever trains it is will benefit from getting the 26 quid on that uh, side Actually, of, actually, uh, no, I, I don't think it was that. I think it was think just lack, lack of organisation. Lack of organisation because there's no yeah. incentive and there's no imperative because capitalism is based on... Well, it's based on whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> now, you're saying... I'm going to hit you over the head with this one. So you're saying that capitalism is the driver because you're intrinsically biased and therefore that defeats your original argument that science is supposed to be based on evidence, truth and fact, insofar as we know it. Now, truth in 2017 is different than truth in 2007 AD. Mm. It's different in truth to 2018. Yes, yes objective so my, truth my is point a difficult is idea. That, right. that you bec- If you become polarised like that and grab onto that, that anger and that hatred, it's never, go- it's never going to resolve anything. I would respectfully submit to anybody, you or anyone listening to this, we are simply opening a door and saying, here we go. I want a solution for this dog who is the friend of Fred and this dog who is the friend of Mary and those people actually do give a damn. And they are the people I'm talking to. And I am determined in my lifetime, and I reckon at the rate I'm going maybe another two years and I might die, but in my Don't lifetime... Don't be grandiose. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say I live 50 years, which will be fantastic. I'm 50, I'm 50 this year. 
I don't know how long I live. You what, don't. You what don't, are you doing? You're you, taking heroin on that train. You're you, going to live for ages. Look at your so, arms. You'll live another 20, 30 years. Let's say I what? do live. That's my job. Yeah, yeah. To let's create assume that, that you're not done. Well, you're a very poetic person, you. I think you're reading too much Irish poetry. And I'm possibly worried you've got a drug problem. <laughs> that's, my, that's my second consideration. Now, what? look, I think actually probably you and I are coming from the same place. So I agree that there's no point entering a table of negotiation with these agencies that regulate drugs if your intention is to get these drugs into veterinary practice so that you can treat more animals and that there is a, a benefit to humanity down the line. In fact, all these imaginary divisions should be dissolved and we should be... Actually, it's not a romantic view. It's a practical view. The maximum amount of help possible. Be as useful as possible. All I... The the only area where we appear to be differing is that you, I suppose, because you are part of the veterinary world and you can't explicitly say these agencies have a vested interest in restricting that kind of progress because they're economically invested. Now, I don't think it's like conspiracy stuff. I don't think so. That's not my, the particular drum I'm banging. All I'm saying is that if you have an economic system that psychopathically prioritises profit above all else, you will see consequences everywhere. You see it in Hollywood. You see it in football. You see it in veterinary practice. Why are West Ham in that stadium? Why remake Beauty and the Beast? Why not let, why not let those drugs be tested on the animals that you're testing on? Yeah, money, 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 Ross, money, 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 money. Ross, I'm going to bring you into my consulting room and give you a little therapy. Thank you. Psychopathic is, is a grab some of those drugs, please. Pretty <laughs> Don't need to uh, test you, them. You'll notice if I treated your dog, you ain't getting any of those drugs, mate. So, uh, <laughs> Noel uh, did treat my dog, Bear. Gave him a wonderful uh, uh, hip replacement, even though, what was it, non-congenital hip dysplasia? Is that what my dog, Bear, had? It was developmental hip dysplasia, yeah. And you're the most useless family ever because we were family. you were useless at uh, we're doing what family. I asked you to do. It's so hard to contain Bear. My girlfriend <laughs> thinks you're a headmaster. She goes, don't tell Noel that we let Bear off the lead. Because he's not in charge of our lives. We're trying yes, our I best. <laughs> like, she thinks it's like yes, that we're at school. So let, and then when we went back to Fitzpatrick we're, referrals... We're going to draw a line I, I here and say that Bear. Russ was, was somewhat irresponsible with the lead exercise. Because he's, and the, he's been to, somewhat he's an irresponsible with the psychopathic comment. And what we're going to do is we're going to invite everybody in the pharmaceutical industry and the regulatory bodies in the United Kingdom and the United States to look at the facts of what's happening in veterinary practice right now, to look at the next 50 years and ask one simple question. Would we be better off continuing as we are or working together? And regardless of your view, I can promise you that we would be better off working together. Well, and that's the premise of One Medicine. Whatever you what want... One Medicine? Is this one a medicine campaign is, you've got? Well, no, one medicine is a ubiquitous term that is ascribed to by multiple universities across the globe. It's very Bob Marley, this one medicine. Yeah, one love, one hope, one medicine. That's my rock concert, man. You know, <laughs> one if medicine you can't, one, for animals and... One medicine for animals and humans because it makes no sense whatsoever. He's put his arms in a Christ as, pose. Uh, no, the, He's a Roman Catholic man from Ireland that's <laughs> flung his arms open saying one medicine. I'm just going to bring you around in a little bag with me and every now and then when I need a jack-in-the-box to pop out, I'll just open it and you'll come out <laughs> Pontificate. I'll calm everything down and people think I'm great. You're not the so, calm one. You're <laughs> not the calm so, one. Uh, one medicine is the principle that if we're going to develop drugs and implants anyway for humans, which we are, why not work together with animals and give them a fair deal? So the, the whole premise is simply give animals a fair deal. There's no point in killing them to give us joint replacements and to limb amputation prostheses and drugs if I can do it on a dog that really needs it. Work with me and I'll give you the data you need and I'll save a life to save a life. I won't take a life to save a life. So the Humanimal Trust, which... That's your foundation, the Humanimal Trust. Which is the foundation I've set up. Everything I have, everything I stand for, and my net worth, whenever I pass off this mortal coil, is left to that charity. Now, there's one simple goal. Human plus animal trusting each other. Humanimal Trust. Fairly straightforward. And I thought, well... Why don't we just bottle, regardless of your race, colour, religion, creed, nationality, whoever, I don't care who you are. I actually don't care if you're a dog, a cat or a human. I care that you're sentient on planet... Well, actually, it could be debated there, Russ. Um, you're sentient on planet Earth. You have feelings, needs and wants. It will be a useful um, progress of evolution for mankind, if you look in purely Darwinian terms, where we're going, would it be useful from a scientific point of view to work together? Yes. Would it be useful from a humanitarian point of view? What is the essence of what makes us human? Uh, the desire to actually look after each other and receive some love and have something to look forward to. Mankind needs three things. Something to love, some kind of hope, 
something to look forward to. Some kind of sustenance, I guess, would be the fourth thing. But the reality is, when it boils down to it, you need bugger all, actually. All the other stuff's window dressing. So the point of one medicine, and there's a lot of hypocrisy out there that says, oh, we'll label this one health, or we'll label this one medicine. Actually, it's an animal as a model for human disease. I say nay. I say no. I say, hang on, what's the animal getting out of that? Let's examine every protocol for one medicine in the world and what's the animal getting out of that. So the Human Animal Trust will never fund any project that involves the loss of an animal life. Hmm. It will only ever fund projects in cancer, infection, whatever else. And by the way, if your family member gets MRSA, it's very similar to the MRSA bug that the dog will get. So if your, fa- if your family member gets cancer, same thing. If your family member needs an implant, same thing. The reality is, if we work together, we, we, we get there faster. Why? I, I agree with everything you said. Obviously, I'm, like, I'm completely on your side. I'm only arguing sometimes to provide a little bit of conflict to drive this uh, forward. Why do you, what are these distinctions? Why do you think these distinctions between bodies exist? Is it for economic financial reasons? Is it because of tradition? Is it because of the way things are? And also, why don't you, a bit like the UFC fighter Conor McGregor, become like a human surgeon as well, like Conor McGregor might fight Floyd Mayweather? This is a reference that's going to split the audience because if you're a really academic person and suddenly I'm talking about MMA, it'd be weird for you but like it sounds to me like they, what, what you're doing because you're talking about unification and a lot of what you're saying sounds quite utopian I mean you go quite quickly from talking about you know sort of like heterogeneous cells and like glycoma and blood you know words that I'm sort of struggling to sort of pull together in my mind to talking about an essential universal one love this is a romantic or perhaps perhaps it's not romantic perhaps it is practical but it's certainly spiritual it's certainly not veterinarian it's like it, I said that wrong like it's like a you're coming from an interesting perspective, Noel Fitzpatrick. I'm coming from the perspective of somebody who cares deeply about the human condition and the animal condition. And remember, first and foremost, I care about the animal condition. I'm looking out here on Leicester Square. There's people walking around with their own needs, wants, desires. Most of them are oblivious to anything and they're just sitting down thinking of whatever is for lunch. But the reality is that all of them are human beings, just like you and me. And we're all going to die. We all have to have a poo and we all have to sleep. So you asked me what the difference was? Physiologically, very little. Mm. There's almost Mm. no difference between the metabolic uh, state inside an immortal cancer cell line in a dog and a human. Mm. Now, do I really get any brownie points for writing the next 40 papers on distraction osteogenesis and Ilazarov fixators and total hip replacement and this, that and the other? No. I get no brownie points from society because they don't read them. And by the way, I'm not bright enough to win a Nobel Prize, so nobody will take any notice. Once you go on television, you begin to build a platform. And when we decided to make the show, myself and my friend bought a cinema camera and we made the pilot because I wanted to make a show about love. I didn't want to make a show about science. But nobody understood it. They thought, oh, the bionic vet wants to make another show about science. Well, great. whoop de doo George in his bed sitting in Brixton is going to watch that whilst eating his microwave meal. Of course he is. No, he's not. He's going to watch the emotional journey with the science as the backdrop. And slowly but surely, the vast majority of the United Kingdom become aware, well, hang on, we're already eight to ten years ahead on implants there. Why don't we share that with humans? Well, duh, the penny finally drops. Is so, it dropping? Yes, it is. And that is what, why... in that one restricted area of... Imp- not one, I'm sure that would help you know, millions of people. So but in that area, the area of implants, you feel like you're getting some traction and some change. No. It's a direct result of SuperVet TV show. No, no. It's, it's not, not having a direct result at this point in time, but... Because your television show, which I am a fan of, it's like a, you know, like it's a reality TV show and there are limitations to that medium. And like you have to show animal is sick at the beginning, owner is upset, super vet steps in, we're going to x-ray, then, uh, then it uh, That's gets That's a good accent, out. by the way. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Some people have called it racist. <laughs> like, and then the animal comes out with little implants on it or that one where you sewed its I'll leg tell you what, its I'll skin. tell you what might be a little bit racist. When I first came to London, London, the surgeon I was working with said, hey, Paddy, would you not be better off picking up a shovel? Well, that is actual <laughs> racism, yeah. Actually, we can so th- confirm that that's racism. So that was quite fun. Um, look, the reality is that there is no way to inject the change that I'm trying to evoke in society. And I'm not just talking about the United Kingdom. I'm talking across the world. If we look at the deracination of species after species. What does that mean? Uh, uprooting of. Deracination. Yeah, to deracinate. Latin. Deracinate. Deracino. 
Yeah. Anyway, moving on. If we look at the uh, obliteration of no, no, species after species, uh, and if we look at the reduction in biodiversity globally, mankind will pay a price for that. Now, what I'm trying to do is simply reflect the microcosm of the relationship that exists between Henry and his dog Trevor and reflect that on the world. People in, in your imagination have got weird names. Mary and Fred at that agency. Henry and Trevor the dog. <laughs> they could swap names. They're all... Trevor is the dog in this particular metaphor. <laughs> so <laughs> whether you like it or not, Trevor is the dog. So Trevor in this metaphor represents <laughs> unconditional love on planet Earth. Now, if we had more of Henry and Trevor, yes, yes. I guarantee you, I promise you, that the hatred and the isolation bred by people impregnating the minds of individuals who can be influenced by negativity can go home, lie down and forget taking over the planet. Because there's 90% plus people who actually believe in Henry and Trevor. And I do. Mm. And that is my job. My job is to convert that love via music, via talking to you, via any form I can into the collective consciousness to try and make a difference. Well, I think that is a bold objective. And it's an objective that obviously I explicitly and have publicly not only agreed with, but espoused. Year, a couple of years ago. Now, what I have found is, like, even not working in an area that's incre incredibly ambitious, but at least limited. Like, you know, we should have a greater flow of information between veterinary practice and human medicine. And if these new cancer drugs are coming out, six thousand drugs that are held back, they should we should be entering into the clinical trial phase or finding new ways of testing these drugs. That's like a big, big ambition because it challenges the uh, status and the agenda of the powerful. Now, if you want to bloody well extrapolate that and say, if our primary objective and our defining characteristic as human beings is love and that and all of the systems on this earth should be governed and uh, uh, judged according on to that basis no that's some serious ambition man and you like you know yeah. and like and it's an ambition that should be pursued but you probably will go mad <laughs> No, he stood up. I've he's just stood up because he's now roused me. Um, because don't this... you put an ah at the beginning of that? Roused or aroused? <laughs> I'm standing up as well. Yes, suddenly, this is getting a bit women in love. This suddenly, for podcast. This never happened with Professor Paul Gilroy. Yes, suddenly talked... roused the beast, um, and then. the beast within me would What's say, the "Problem with the guy that you cannot." And you will not succeed unless you find what the hook in people's psychology is. And for most people, that is a movie, it's a feeling, it's a piece of bread, it's an emotion created in music, it is having a hug from your loved one or your dog when you go home. What's the hook? What makes your day? What actually creates something in your life today that actually matters? Is it driving your flash car to your flash job, your ego in men's mouths? Is it being told you're great or taking the next drug? Is it getting annoyingly drunk on a Friday night? No. Have I subdued myself to all of that in my lifetime? Yes. Do I think it's going to ultimately bring me happiness? No. All I want is a hug, and whether that is Trevor, the dog, giving me a hug, well, or whether it's... Unless you've given him bionic monkey limbs. His elbows don't go the right way. <laughs> a girl giving me a hug, or my mum giving me a hug, that's love. So you're still after love. You, It is a bit like Silence of the Lambs, because you are, in a way, still frozen at the side of that ditch with that lamb, still yes. looking for love, still looking for completion. It's interesting that we are very close to Easter, that the lamb is the symbol of salvation <laughs> and the symbol of sacrifice. Uh, shortly we shall move on to bunny rabbits and other Easter eggs. Possibly. Um, no, but even Brought if we, to you even by chocolate we, manufacturers everywhere. Even if we stick with the lamb, Noel, what is it that you're actually looking for? Because like you've, you're an actor as well, is that right? How the how is I'm the, how have you possibly got all these qualifications? Become a professor and still have time to turn up in heartbeat, <laughs> whatever the hell it is. You've been in heartbeat playing a sheep rustler. You've been in the bill, which I have. That's another thing we've got in common. Oh great! You've been in a movie, Devil's Tattoo. How have you done all of these things as well as being? A vet. How uh, have you? That's uh, like finding out that I'm a brain surgeon. <laughs> yeah, I did that. I did that while I was doing Big Brother. No, what what happened was I just uh, I couldn't read and write at age 11, and I thought I I fell in love with Dylan Thomas and Oscar Wilde, and one poem changed changed my world. And in, in that, see, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you the last four lines from that poem. Go on. Uh, it said, um, I can write no stately poem as a prelude to today, but from a humble poet to a humble poem, I would dare to say that if of these fallen petals, just one to you seems dear, love will waft it till it settles on your hair. And when wind and winter harden all the loveless land, it will whisper of a garden that only you will understand. 
Oscar. Wow, and that Nick died in Reading. Yeah, or more or less died in Reading. Misunderstood. Now, my point being, it will whisper of a garden that only you will understand in all the loveless land. Now, if you look at any revolutionary, any person who genuinely believed in what they were doing was the right thing to do, I want to create Live Aid across the world every year. And the last two years, I stood in a park in Guildford. And this year, hopefully I will again. And I see thousands of people in that field. And they feel just like I felt when I read Oscar Wilde for the first time or when I saw Freddie Mercury for the first time. Here's a dude who is a homosexual. He comes on a stage in Ireland to one of the biggest gatherings that had ever happened in Ireland. And he stands up in July 1986, I think it was, and he comes out in his white tracksuit with red stripes and holds a crown in the air and sings One Vision. And in that moment, I'm like, wow, now that's influencing people. Because in that moment, for two and a half hours, he held those people in the palm of his hand. Now, these guys were drunken Irish guys, like me. I was a teenager. I knew nothing about nothing. But what I did know was that in that moment in time, he held me in his hand. Now, what do I do with Supervet? In one hour, in that week, I have an opportunity to hold you in my hand. Have you made a difference? I think you possibly have. Yes, it's made a difference, in, but possibly even in the same terms of the, as the example of Freddie Mercury. Now, all of us are impacted by powerful showmen and people that are excellent at exhibiting. But systemic change is a little more difficult to achieve. Systemic you, change will only come from the change of one molecule of thought. You can't do it blanket. You can't go out tomorrow into the high street. I also in think London. it will come from focus, happen. mate. That's one of the things that I've empirically experienced. You know, like now I don't, you know, want to apply the scalpel of cynicism to live aid, but some analysis of what subsequently happened with that money makes interesting and somewhat dispiriting reading because these systems are very good at containing the kind of romanticism and the kind of ideas that you and I are discussing. And I think one of the things I do agree with is perhaps we all to with open and outstretched hands reach out to Fred and Mary and the people with power in the industry of Big Pharma but at some point you have to explain very clearly what the nature of the relationship between these powerful institutions, government and commerce are and I also think mate that it might be important to maintain a degree of focus because I think you're doing incredible work and I don't think there is a limit to love and I think that animals and the relationship between human beings and animals is a remnant emblem of of paganism and our inherent understanding that these wordless creatures are a representative of essence and where would that essence lie than other than within what is it when you love your dog what is it when you love another person who is it you're relating to now we began this talking about the distinction between art and science and love is a very difficult thing to distill love is a very difficult thing to legislate science is something that people can go i can do this i can do that and i think that this it seems that that, that does seem to be the language that we're speaking focus you talk to me mm. about focus Let's uh, pronounce that carefully because I don't want to focus as much as you might have You'd done. Be careful. So, uh, One Live is a music festival which is on the 9th of July in Stoke Park in Guildford. And I make no, uh, I make an unashamed advertisement for it because I genuinely believe that in that field, the essence of why we're humanity at all resonates. And it, it's the coming together of people who care about animals and care about life in humans as well. And it's the coming together of movement. You say, where does the money go? Every single penny, every single penny that ever exists from that event. Where does it go? Where does it come from? <laughs> That's what I mean. It comes from the people's pockets buying a ticket and it goes into the Human Animal Trust, which will sponsor research that will help both animals and humans at the same time mm. with never the extinguishment of a life on our watch. And the thing you and I are doing is actually very different. Yeah, it's what is at this? the vet festival on, I think it's like the 9th of June or something. Vets are increasingly isolated, they're increasingly losing sleep, they're increasingly disenchanted that what they signed up for wasn't exactly what it said on the can when they did the study. And that's because it's very high stress, very high pressure, lots of uh, different demands, lots of clients giving you grief every day, lots of patients that might die. Suicide rate is increasing, the calls to helplines have doubled in the last several months and the last couple of years. People, uh, unfortunately, uh, exist in a world where they also have access to drugs. Uh, 
Mm. And Do you, you think this is a big problem within your industry? Well, mental you, health and drug use. Mental health is a big problem, and that is what you, you, like you and me, I are going to do. What about do. not being facetious now? Back to a more personal level. Yeah. Like, what is it stressful for you? You're dealing with a lot of love. You're dealing with like on a daily basis. You're rolling the dice on on a heartbreak of, of other people. Is it? How's that? How has that affected you, mate? Um, it's messed me up a bit. Has it? So yeah. what are you doing? What are you doing for yourself on a like a personal level to remain? Like, I mean, all this evident philanthropy and altruism is like obviously very, very powerful. But what are you doing? Like, you're clearly a workaholic. You sleep in your bloody surgery, don't you? Most of the time, yeah. You're like some sort of mad Morrissey vet. You even look a um, bit like Morrissey. Um, and I agree with this thing, that the whole attitude of looking at animals as something that's secondary and something that we can exploit, that's something that like, I've been thinking a lot about a lot lately because of Simon Amstel made a brilliant film about veganism and like, I found very affecting, talking to you and your evident passion and your willingness to transcend all of these boundaries. I completely agree with you. I don't disagree with anything you've said. I agree with absolutely all of it. But one of the things that interests me about you, because, you know, because of my own personal experience, is that you know, when people say, you know, are you a well-intended, well-meaning crusader and revolutionary, Revolutionary, uh, trying to fight a good fight, or are you an egomaniac? The answer in my case is I'm both. I'm both of those things. I'm a blazing, raving egomaniac, but I'm working very, very hard on the egomania so that I can do be of some use and it's going to be like for me I think a sort of a long and difficult journey now like I've had obviously well publicised challenges around drugs and sex and anything that I can use to make myself feel better in life well, that's what you and I are going to talk about in front of a pile of vets and we're going to actually try and make like a difference sit in rows them. don't pile them up no but uh, yeah well they have the same problems too so you ask me about me um, go on of yeah, course of course you have mental health issues and you feel lonely and sad and, and actually I'll probably go as far as to say suicidal. It's it's that's a very strong word to say. You really? Do you sometimes feel suicidal? You're doing all this good, well, all this passion. That's not now. Good. But in the past, that is something that has been part of my life. Yeah. And um, the problem for me is is that you need an ego, a huge ego, to go into theatre and believe you're going to win. Do you, mate? Every surgeon has a huge Do ego. Do they? That's uh, a general absolutely. thing. I think so. Because you're going up against I think what, so. death or uh, Up whatever. against the biological odds. And often they're stacked against you and you are determined to bend biology to your will. And remember, biology has a mind of its own. So uh, in your waiting room just now, I had five different exchanges with animals who are having trouble at the practice that I'm going to go back to. And... They are doing stuff that I didn't predict they were going to do. I'm wow. always at the mercy. Negative. Some negative, some well, yeah, negative. Yeah, and then you can have and, to now like, I'll have surgery, yes, another course, of yeah, action. or change drugs or whatever. And people need to realize that I don't have the solution to all problems. I'm just a leprechaun trying to do his best. For that's it. That's it. I'm just a human being. I have feelings too. And every time I hold your hand and try and do the right thing, you need to understand. I think that that I am human and. All my colleagues, I mean, there's 240 plus people at the practice and they all have their own needs and wants. And if I'm a grumpy bear, that's not in their best interest. So uh, what I do is I, I go to a rock concert and I basically just go mental for two hours. And that gets it out of my system. I went to a, a Lord in Atlantis a couple of weeks ago and that was the best thing I did for ages. Because I would basically just go to Reading Festival, lie in a field, listen to some bands and that would be my therapy because I escape into that music and it removes me from the shackles of my own constant self-analysis. Do you think that's sufficient and structured enough? I mean, if this was a patient of yours, presumably one that had language, would you say that was a sufficient... No, I don't think... It's not, is it? It needs to be more structured. Uh, Yeah, and I've had that too. I've had that too. I've had had the, the the psychological help and everything else, but, you know, at the end of the day... It comes down to a choice. I don't have to do what I do. It would be easier for me just to go in and cut a few cruciate operations, stick a scope in some elbows and sort them out and go home. I would. Mm. Uh, but that's not, my, that's not why I'm on earth. And at the end of the day, although that would definitely help animals, and I, I did that for several years, and, and thank God I did help some animals, but at the end of the day, I'm here for a very specific reason, and it's not just to pump my own ego other than going into theatre and having the ego that thinks I'm going to win. But I don't have any clue, to be honest, about what to do to make this happen, except to know that every single thing I do, including getting on the, a, a delayed taxi to come here to see you today, 
actually might make a difference. So I have to go with my gut, suffer the consequences, and the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, if we come back to the drama thing, is the ubiquitous feeling of mankind, even if you don't try. So you have to suffer them, mm. even if you're just mm. lying on a bench, doing nothing. <laughs> That's a good point, man. It's so the reality point. is I may as well suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune whilst trying to change the world, as suffer them in the isolation of my own mind whilst doing bugger all. I think it's really beautiful. No, it's a wonderful advocacy for idealism. It's a wonderful advocacy for continuing a try, for continuing to make an effort that we that we are all flawed and that perhaps our sort of our mad egos now idealism can be used in service and i wouldn't seek to place any limitation on you or your dreams or your visions thank you i think your much, advice man. about focus is very well placed and yeah, i shall is, take yeah. i shall take it on board um i try so hard in the moment to be focused and genuinely and again, I don't need to, to lick anybody's ego, but um, you coming into to my life just recently uh, was a remarkable serendipity because uh, I know that you've been through all your own crap. And I, from my perspective, uh, believe, and I do believe this, that we get back what we put out. And I do think that just talking to you today, someone out there is going to think, you know what? Both of them might be entire egomaniacs. Both of them might be total facade. Both of them might be pretending to the nth degree. But I guarantee you, I promise you, we've made someone think and then we've done our job. Yes. That's what we're out to do. We're idealists. We're crusaders. We're getting under the skin of the issue with a man who genuinely knows how to get under the skin with a scalpel and with all manner of lyrics and ideals. Noel Fitzpatrick, Professor Noel Fitzpatrick, thanks very much. Thanks for doing very much. This, man. Thank you. This show was sponsored by me and uh, my rebrand tour. Tour dates. Include Southampton, May the 2nd, Woking, 3rd of May, Oxford, 10th of May, Southport, 23rd of May, Aylesbury, 6th of June, Watford, 7th of June, Skegness, 15th of June. Go to russellbrand.com for tickets, forward slash brand. No, we have not done any of that. Just buy the ticket there. If you like today's show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes. Five-star reviews only, please. Don't even consider pressing one or two. Why would you bother? We simply need you to do this for monetary gain. You've been listening to Under the Skin. Have a look. Never smell.